0: Welcome back to part two of our conversation with designated drinker and director of education of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Latino, Emily Key. So if you've missed part one, go ahead and belly up to the bar and give that one a listen first. We'll save a seat right here for you, won't we, Gina? Yeah, we will. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hi. In last episode, We talked about a lot of things, a lot of the things, a lot of the history of Cinco de Mayo and Gina has decided she's going to swear off tequila and nachos for Cinco de Mayo. Emily, I know there's a lot more here. Can we uh, maybe jump into more current times and talk more about these these damn French who left their lasting impression and actually made for amazing cuisine? So
1: I think one of the really interesting things is, as Gina was noting, a lot of the cuisine and the food and the culture and even the architecture has these influences of the French. And one of the interesting things about Cinco de Mayo and really the Battle of Puebla, the French incursion into Mexico is not just the war itself and the history, which we talked a lot about and, you know, I think is really interesting. It's a lasting legacy of the French, right? And when you think about Mexican culture and cuisine, there are certain things that are iconic to Mexico. Um, You think of bolillos and sweet bread and pastry. And the interesting thing to Mm -hmm. note is bolillo, sweet bread, pastry, all these things that we think of as iconic Mexican dishes are actually inspired by French counterparts. So flan. How many of us love flan? Oh, I love it. Serve it it up by the bucket. So flan is really just (laughs) an old style French custard with uh, dulce de leche American, uh, the America's twist, right? The dulce de leche that you would find in Mexico. It's really like the cousin to French custard. (laughs) Um,
0: So would they be kissing cousins then? Yeah. (laughs) I mean. French kissing cousins at that. Hello. Exactly. (laughs) Talk about your kink. (laughs) So one of the
1: interesting things here is we think of very iconic things, and really it's interesting to look back into history and find out how they even showed up at our doorstep, right? So the Mexican bolillo, which is, Basically, it's a salty bread. Um, Think of it as a football shaped bread Mm -hmm. with a uh, really textured, crisp crust. But then on the inside, it's very um, fluffy and just delicious to eat with like melted butter. Everything. Um, With all the things. And it's like the size, it's the size and shape of uh, a small football, right? You think of this bread. And you think of it as this iconic bread for Mexican sandwiches. Torta. Um, tortas. <laughs> They're known as tortas. Um, they have lots of different meats, or sometimes they have chicken or or cold cuts, cheeses. Uh, beans. Beans. <laughs> um, very iconic Mexican sandwich bread, if you think of it as sandwich bread. Not actually only Mexican. It's French influence. It's the Mexican version of a baguette. It is a smaller, rounder baguette, but it, it, it's influenced, it's inspired from the French baguette.
2: Also delicious with butter. Yes. And, and And all the things. And all the things, <laughs> and actually-
1: uh, in, And I put in,
2: beans on that baguette too. In, in today's, in today's day-to-day day
1: in Mexico, and for many Mexican-American communities in the U.S., if you go to the American Southwest, you have asked for a torta, and you can get it with, you know, ham and cheese, you know, your typical yeah. American sandwich, but on bolillo
0: bread. So let me ask you this then. Which is, is okay with me. So let me ask you this, so flour tortillas, is this from a European influence then? Cause now all of a sudden I'm thinking a crepe is like a tortilla, now I'm getting well, like, it's. Funny you should mention crepes.
1: <laughs> um, Cause I can go down the list here. So if you haven't been to Sanborn's in Mexico, city must go, must go to this you know, I restaurant. I haven't
0: been to Mexico City since I was a child because well, I always going to the beach and sit my yeah. not so brown you, butt you, on the, on the sand. You
1: must go to this restaurant. And the reason why is there's an iconic Mexican dish called enchiladas suizas. Mm. Enchiladas suizas are basically enchiladas like we know of, yep, uh, filled with chicken and topped with Cream, green sauce, and cheese al gratin kind oh, of. Oh yeah, put in yep. the oven. Yep, it's actually the Mexican version
0: of a crepe. Of a crepe. As you were discuss as you were describing, I'm like, of course, it just. Have,
1: is it sort fatios. of
2: layered or is it wrapped?
1: It's wrapped yeah. like an enchilada, and okay. they usually come nice in a nice little row. There are three lice in a little row, and they're absolutely delicious. And it is an iconic Mexico City dish. Iconic, iconic, iconic.
2: There's an argument that that crepes came from Italy first, with, with pastiche instead of instead of crepes. So, it, like they say that cuisine started in northern Italy, and then the French adapted it.
1: So let's, very, let's
2: let's get into it because i really, really. I mean,
1: it could very well be because you can yeah. totally see the sort of layered concept. But you yeah. can start to yeah. see where the the enchilada suiza is made with corn tortilla, which is very much corn found of the Americas. You know, mm-hmm. one yeah. of the yes. uh, you know staples of the American uh, continents. You know, diet. Um, so you can see that Mexican indigenous uh, element and yeah. influence, and then layered on top of that. Literally. Yes, uh, yes, like literally, literally yes, that yes. creamy sauce of very much uh, like a bechamel of French culture and cuisine. Oh, yes. And so, uh, you know, you can start to see how, again, cultures don't live in a vacuum. Yeah. Right. And, and people start to uh, take those inspirations and. Use what is native to their communities and change yeah. the, the recipe, right? Um, one last sort of uh, food influence, right, from the French is um, something that is so iconic, too. And my personal favorite uh, sweetbread, which is an oreja, um, it's literally like the shape of an ear. Yeah. Um, you I might know them as French Palmiers. Yep. Um, they are literally inspired, taken from that you know, sort of sort of pastry tradition in France, and so you can start to see little by little in the sweet cuisine, in the uh, in the savory cuisine, that ongoing French tradition that did not disappear just because the French lost the war. Um, it just became part of the day-to-day life of, of Mexican communities so, and then it transfers to Mexican American communities here in the US. So,
0: so I'm gonna have to say you wait know, I love having Emily here, but I don't know if we can have her come back anymore.
2: Cause every time she's on the show, I'm hungry as hell. Every yeah, time I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I have a question because I think I've eaten those ear the um ear ones that you're saying, uh, because um so wait, do you yeah. have that with coffee, right? You have that with coffee, right?
1: Yeah, you have it with coffee, with hot chocolate, right? With but you café dip it leche. in there, right? You dip it in there. You can. I mean, a lot of times you'll have um, this tall café con leche, um, which is basically coffee, coffee with milk. And milk. Yeah, and um, you then take. It's your almost s- like
0: milk with coffee.
1: Exactly, <laughs> but it's just so beautiful. And then you take your uh, sweet bread. Sometimes it's the oreja. Sometimes it's like a concha, which yeah. is like a different type of sweetbread. And you dip it into the the coffee I uh, with have, milk.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, honestly, I had a very amazing um, uh, friend that we went to Mexico City with the first time. And I didn't have to, like, really do anything. They're like, do you want to eat this? I'm like, yeah, I want to eat everything. So I yeah, just, eat it that's all. what we did. We just ate everything. I awesome. mean,
1: it's the right thing to do. It is. It's, there's never a, Mexico, never a bad time to say no to food. And I mean, I think one of the really interesting things here is then how we then start to see these traditions come from Mexico to the U.S., as Mexican-American communities grow and establish themselves here in the U.S. after the Mexican-American War in 1848. So we're back to wars. Um, and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which basically gives the U.S. Um, what we know of today as the American Southwest, right? California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, um, fill in the blank on those areas. You, those communities that were living in those lands bring with them these traditions, bring with them these um these cultural uh, and foodways traditions that we now see everywhere in the U.S., right? I mean, uh, one of the really interesting facts to to note is that... um, you know, early in uh, the 21st century or late 20th century, depending on, you know, your frame of reference, um, salsa overtook ketchup as the number one condiment in America. And one of the reasons for that is that these these communities, the Mexican-American community that is, that is growing and expanding um, really influences the cuisine that we eat today and we think of today as American food, right? Yeah. Tex-Mex, tacos. Which brings us to Cinco de Mayo, right? And it's the full circle. Um, and how do we get to Cinco de Mayo being popular in the U.S.? It's
0: like a tortilla, just so you know. It's round. It's Circular. round.
2: <laughs> it's like a tortilla. I'm just staring at you because I, I can't believe how much I don't know.
0: Like, I mean, what the hell do I, I can, know? And the good thing is, Emily says,
2: we I can know. go to the it's museums. Crazy. That's what
0: the Smithsonian is. we fortunate to have them. They're a they're, treasure, and just, they're like, free. just like Emily, and they are free. Here treasure. In DC. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so it comes back
1: to Cinco de Mayo and how we, how do we even have this celebration here in the U.S.? Why do we have it, um, especially since it's not really celebrated outside of Puebla? How did it make its way to mainstream U.S. culture, where you know Cinco de Mayo is like what, second to the Super Bowl, the only day where avocado is yep. most yep. consumed in the U.S. Second to the Super Bowl is Cinco de Mayo. Isn't that
0: crazy? And it's like in January.
1: It's a really interesting phenomenon, right? We've we've taken these very iconic cultural elements, avocados native to, to Latin America, and we've made them into these major food uh, icons for U.S. culture. Similar we've done to Cinco de Mayo. So how did it come to the U.S.? In the 1960s, there's this movement called the Chicano Movement, which is— Little bit of sort of backstory. Mexican-American communities can call themselves Mexican-Americans. They might call themselves Tejanos if they're from Texas. Um, They might also call themselves Chicanos or Chicanas. And the Chicana movement really came to, you know, a point ahead in the 1960s. And it was sort of parallel to the civil rights movement, um, and actually had a lot to do in part with the civil rights movement, with the farm workers movement. So you have some of these major 1960s social um, political movements. And the Chicano movement came of age in that time period. Um, and the Chicano movement, one of the big things that they're trying to do in this movement is reclaim indigenous um, the indigenous past, the indigenous history, and recenter that, right? Um, you might hear it today as decolonized, um, but it's it's really about reclaiming the indigenous, uh, the indigenous past, the indigenous history. And so the Chicano movement looked to Cinco de Mayo as an example of indigenous people of Mexico, the community of Mexico, Mexican people, coming together to basically, beat the French, but expel the European invader, right? And and so this idea of triumph of the Indigenous people, of the community that is from that area um, against the European uh, settler. And that ideal was a very interesting ideal for the Chicano movement because it paralleled this idea that the Chicano movement had of reclaiming indigeneity, reclaiming its indigenous legacy and its past um, and really centering uh, the Chicano movement narrative in in the rights of the people of the communities that were present, right, The, the historical communities.
0: Gina, Emily, it's really interesting because when you talk about these things, most of our listeners know my father is Mexican was, because I always say that, I always clarify, because he's passed. Um, but my mother had blonde hair and blue eyes. and grew up Midwest, and no Mendoza speaks Spanish, because my grandparents came to the U.S. 100 years ago and bought a farm in Duluth, Minnesota, or South Dakota, really, and then ended up in Duluth, Minnesota. I This whole Chicano movement you talk about is such a, a a blank in my family history because my father was so much older, I think, and when my grandparents came into the U.S., it was about a simulation. And whether we agree with that now, it doesn't fit with our sensibilities today. And I find myself often apologizing for it Um, because people are like, well, how many times, Gina, do you hear people say to me, you should be able to speak Spanish? Yeah. And I'm well, like, yeah. well, do you speak, does everyone pop out bilingual? Because I did not. I, I missed that card. But it was growing up in the Midwest, it was about about my my fathers, the Mendozas were about assimilation, because for them that meant success. Mm-hmm. And then growing up in the Midwest, I was one of two Mexican families in the entire white neighborhood I grew up in. So it's just really, and, and when you say these things, that makes me want to go to the, in. where I'm getting at is that I obviously have a big giant hole in my in my knowledge, and even in my connection with my own heritage. And uh, I guess what I'm getting is that I'm really can't wait to go to the museum to learn more about myself. <laughs> well, I mean,
1: like like you, many. I think one of the things that you know, immigrant communities, whether you're Latino or Irish or Italian, I think immigrant communities struggle with this idea of retaining their heritage versus assimilating to the new community that they are part of, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a narrative that you see in history, but it's also a narrative you see today, right? And I think one of the really interesting things about history and the ability to go back in time and, and learn from it is to see where did we come from, right? Yep. You know, there's the whole, the old saying of you can't know where you're going until you know where you came from. Yeah. And I think there's this opportunity to learn because so many of our ancestors really were trying to make it, right? They were trying to make it in the country. They were trying to make it in their new home. And in order to do that, they felt pressured to to conform to where they were living, right? And to let go of some of those very obvious things that connect you to your heritage, like language, right? I think everybody, whether you know Spanish or not, um, you know, everybody that has you know, Latino heritage, can point to one thing, right? There, there may not be language. There may not be, you know, you know your entire family history, but you may remember your grandmother, you know, having a, a pan dulce, or you may remember, you know, you know, in your, in your grandmother's home or your great-grandmother's home having tortillas instead of bread. Or, you know, there are small elements that remain, right? Yep. But there is this larger push and larger effort to make sure that, in order for your your family to succeed you must sacrifice that heritage background in order to conform to where you're you're living yeah. right and i think the reality is kids today grow up with a much greater sense of the importance of heritage than maybe 20, 30 years ago.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I totally agree, but I I think that's probably why I think that the museum, although it would be late in the game to come to fruition, it's a really, It's a pinnacle time for it to be a part of our American story.
1: I mean, it's never too late, number one. (laughs) Um, The educator in me wants to tell you that it's never too late to learn. Um, But I also think, you know, the museum, the National Museum of the American Latino and its upcoming Molina Family Latino Gallery, uh, as of later this spring, um, is going to tell the history of Latinos as part of U.S. history, right? Yep. So it's this idea that Latinos have been here and have been part of U.S. history, whether you acknowledge it or understand it or even know about it. Yep. And so I think this idea that you can go and see yourself and your story, whether you're Latino or non-Latino, is really important to telling the story of Latinos in this country, right? Because it, it helps you understand yourself, if you are Latino, or your neighbor or your friend or your teacher or your fireman, Um Or your podcast co-host. Or your
0: podcast co-host,
1: exactly. I mean, I think the the reality is it helps you understand that human story, right? And and there are a lot of elements in in the history of Latinos that are also elements in the history of other communities and cultures, right? And I think we tend to, we want to isolate history into one particular group of people. Um, But the reality is that they're human stories, right? The story of immigration, the story of war, the story of um, you know economic uh, empowerment, the story of uh, food yeah. and food waste traditions. These are human stories, right? Yeah. We're telling them in the museum from the Latino lens, but in theory, anybody walking through those doors should be able to connect with that story um, because you should be able to see your own story in that. Um, yeah whether or not you're Latino. And I think that's the beauty of the museum, the gallery, um, our resources online, is that hopefully it helps demystify Cinco de Mayo, but it also helps say, oh my gosh, there's so many connections here, right, that I didn't See before, and that now I see, and it totally makes sense why there's French architecture in Mexico, right? And yeah. and, and it's like, oh, aha!
0: Wait, Jan, I think you. This should inspire you to make a cocktail. We okay. need a drink, mm-hmm.
2: drink. All right, let's because, get a drink. you know, it's the only way I'm gonna forget the fact that like we have invested so much in the secret. Of the <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get it Let's get yeah, a drink. Right. Okay. All right. So this is one of my favorite um, fun classic cocktails. Uh This is a version of the Last Word, right? So we're gonna add. Uh, mezcal, which is one of my favorite um, agave-based spirits. And a little little trick to this when you're thinking about tequila versus mezcal is tequila can only come from the state of Jalisco. So just remember that when you're like kind of like going to the store and you're like, oh, I'm gonna buy tequila. Did it come from Jalisco? Then it is tequila. Did it come from somewhere else in agave-based spirit? Then it is mezcal. So just remember that when you're when you're talking about it. Alright, so I love the last word because it is a bunch of ingredients that don't make any sense and they should not go together and it is Luxardo, Chartreuse, um, and the, today we're going to use the Mezcal and Lime. Traditionally it's made with gin, also doesn't seem to be to go together. And what's fun about this drink, it's from the um, Detroit Athletic Club uh, in, um, in Detroit. Uh, it's a very, it's an old classic cocktail uh, and now we're going to make it a little bit new and a little bit more fun, okay? And we'll adopt it for, um, what did we say? It is the Pueblo Independent. Battle of Pueblo. P- P- Battle of Pueblo. I'm no longer calling it Cinco de Mayo. All right, <laughs> so here we go. So the deal is, is that if you're making this for you and your friend, it's three quarters ounce for each individual cocktail. I'm going to do one and a half ounces because I'm making two drinks here. Just remember, it's equal parts. So if you're making, you know, gallons of it, then it's a gallon, a gallon, and a gallon. So right now we're going to do one and a half ounces of each thing. So we put in the um, maraschino liqueur, we put in our Muscal, and now we're going to add our chartreuse. Chartreuse is a little fun um, liquor that was uh, developed in the 1700s in France, so it kind of makes sense that it's all together <laughs> uh, in France. And, um you know it's just you know 130 ingredients and no one knows what's in it so that's what's kind of the beauty of that uh, liquor all right so then we're gonna do that and we're gonna put in uh, a juice of a whole lime and again it's a three quarters ounce for each drink so for us one and a half ounces is about what comes out of a fresh lime so right everything so far sounds pretty disgusting some kind of herbaceous liquor <laughs> something that tastes like cherry and then you have this uh, and then you have this wonderful agave spirit and we're gonna put it in there you're going to fill the top of your shaker tin three-quarters full of ice. Combine the two, 90 degrees on your elbow, and your ratio. And just when you think it's done, it's not done because your hands can still hold it. So it is not better. It's such it's
0: a beautiful, beautiful sound, is it not, Emily? It, it is great. Yeah, it makes, it makes me, like, salad. Sal- so sal- when you
2: can look at your tin and you can write your name on it is when you know it's finished, right? So I'm going to give it a little love tap. Take that off. Now, we chilled our glasses. Now, traditionally, you'd put this in a coupe. But today, we're going to do this in... uh, um, You can put it in any glass. As long as you chill it, it's fine. Um, Just make sure that your glass has a bottom and the drink doesn't fall out, okay? (laughs) (laughs) So, we're going to strain this in. Now, uh, your drink has an option. You can put on there. Excuse me. The drink is optional. Garnish. You can use a cherry, or you can opt out. And I will... Ladies, cherries, no cherries? No chance. cherry, please. No? Okay. It's a little bit sweeter with the cherry. That's good. There we go. So this is a brandy cherry that we're gonna use. And you put one in the bottom. Last chance.
1: Okay, I'll try the cherry. I'll All try
2: right. something you new. you don't have to eat it. It's just this last touch of sweetness. Otherwise, it, it becomes sometimes a little a little tart, but who cares? It's still delicious.
0: Kind of like Gina, just a little
2: tart. Ah, uh, and that's it. And this is your uh, mezcal last.
0: Thank oh. you. Oh wow, this looks beautiful. Yes. Cheers. It's delicious. Cheers. I oh, that's Ooh. beautiful on the nose. This is very nice. Very smooth. Well, I bet you that's a little bit uncanny that they all go together, huh? It is, and it. I think it speaks to everything that Emily. Uh, it's been talking about. I think you did an amazing job. What do you think, Emily? This cocktail is amazing. It has French. Yes. It has Mexico. And you know
1: what? Most importantly. And Italy. And Italy. It has yeah. French. It has Mexico. It has Italy. But most
2: importantly, it's tasty. Yes. Aww. I love that. We'll make it part of your repertoire Making making mezcal, last word.
0: There you go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. So where are they going to go to get this?
2: You're going to go to show for our tips, tricks, how-to's. Why you should not be eating tortilla chips on Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> you can still eat tortilla chips and
1: guacamole and drink tequila and mezcal. Absolutely. I mean, basically now you can be an informed designated drinker. There you go.
2: I got my new uh my new bar thing where I'm gonna be like, so what do you think Cinco de Mayo is about? Yeah. And then I'm gonna make like, you wrong and then I have bets. <laughs> all right, Emily, I'm
0: gonna have I'm Emily, gonna
2: I'm gonna have Emily come to the bar and be like, all right, here we go, you. <laughs> What do you think it is? <laughs> wrong. What is the right answer? And then I'm going to say, me answer. up. And we'll every, every
0: time they get a wrong answer, Emily gets a drink. Yeah. Oh my God. She's going to be on the floor in
1: minutes. But I <laughs> will be having a blast yeah. because I think you should still celebrate Cinco de Mayo, but
0: now you can celebrate it and know the truth and the history behind it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. But no, that drink is amazing. Thank you. It's a different take. Yeah. We're going to make sure that we have everything for the museum at show, along with the tips, and tricks, and how tos, as we always do. But make sure that people have access when even those who don't live in the D.C. area um, have ways to learn more and maybe fill those gaps like me.
1: Exactly. And if you ever do find yourself in D.C.,
0: come visit us at the Smithsonian. We're your nation's
1: museum, and we're free oh, and we open that? 364 days a year. Yay!
0: Yay. So I don't know. Did we ask you
2: last time this question? I don't think so. Well, let's see if it's the same answer. Oh, yeah. Maybe I'm it's sure changed. We did. I'm sure right? we did. I'm sure we well, did. Well, she's looking at me, so I guess we have not. No, I think we have. Um, so in this day and age, you know, everyone identifies themselves with mythical um, beings. And maybe you identify with the Chuchikapra. <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to come in and decimate. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you can identify yourself with one ingredient, whether it's for food or beverage, what would that ingredient be and why does it define you? Man, this is
1: hard. We didn't ask her. I don't know. You did not ask me. Wow. Um, How does we miss that? that? Was it was uh, a
2: Christmas you know, holiday. holiday
1: episode. Oh, man.
2: First thing that comes to your mind? Cheese. Yes. <laughs> Why? Go. First thing.
1: It's ooey gooey and soft. I and it. I tend to be a softy. I love it. Um, I, I think that's why I like education because I'm a softie at heart and, Aww. um, the ooey gooey of cheese reminds me of being a softie. Oh
0: my gosh. I yeah. love that answer. And it goes perfect on bread. <laughs> and it good. goes perfect on bread. <laughs> Honestly, it goes perfect on, on everything. Put cheese on everything. I love that. All right. Cheers. 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 Thank, cheers. thank you. Thank Cheers. 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 The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.